The opinions expressed by the guests and contributors of this podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of Cornell University or its employees. On today's show, we continue our conversation with Oliver Goodrich, Associate Dean of Spirituality and Meaning Making and the Director of Cornell United Religious Work. We go in depth on how spirituality, religion, and faith can guide us through current issues related to social injustices and COVID-19. My name is Toral Patel. My name is Anthony Sis. And you are listening to the Inclusive Excellence Podcast. Oliver, super happy to have you back for this second part of the topic on spirituality, on faith, and on religion. So as we reflect and get near to the end of 2020, there's been a lot going on in this country. There's a lot going on in the world, especially regarding COVID-19 and social injustices, generally speaking. And we started talking about this a little bit in the first part. But what do you see the role of religion, spirituality, and faith in guiding folks through this moment? Mm. It's a challenging question to answer, Anthony, because part of the difficulty of this moment is that we don't have access to the same social spaces that we had six months ago, right? So I would love to give you some big answer about people gathering together in their congregations and their mosques and their synagogues and their churches and talking about these issues. But the reality is People can't gather. It's not safe to gather in in a lot of houses of worship right now. So people are having to adapt and have this conversation in virtual spaces or or one-on-one. I do believe that religion can and should have a lot to say about this. And, And let's be clear, religion has been a part of some of the problems and I think can be a part of some of the solutions to the particular things we're talking about, right? Religion has fueled racist ideology. And religion can be a part of anti-racism. I think both of those things are true. And that's a complicated thing for me to acknowledge in the work that I do, but it's true. I think one of the things that we're beginning to talk about, for example, in CURW with the chaplains that I work with at Cornell is how can religious leaders open up spaces where we can talk about those things that we would prefer not to talk about, like religion and politics, right? Uh, We talked about this in the last episode. And it's tough. It's difficult for us to open up those spaces and talk about things that we would prefer not to. And I I think it really requires us to live into and practice some spiritual practices, right? I, I tend to think about spirituality along the lines of posture, like a spiritual director I used to work with invited me to think about our, it was when we think about our heart and our energy and life force and some of those things we talked about spirituality meaning in the last episode, right? To think about what's a posture that represents how my spirit is oriented to these things. And I think about what it means for us to try to have a posture of openness toward difficult conversations, as opposed to a posture of like, listeners can't see me, but I'm like crossing my arms and having a little bit of like a closed in body posture, because that's how a lot of us feel toward these difficult subjects. We'd prefer to turn away from them And I think there can be an invitation for us to turn toward them, as difficult as that might be. It really requires some deep spiritual work for us to turn toward these difficult topics. So I'm curious, you said posture, right? And how 
looking at spirituality as like different postures that kind of consist of spirituality. What what exactly does that mean? I'd be curious to learn more about kind of your perspective on that and how it ties to some of the things you mentioned around racism, anti-racism, other social injustices that are happening both in the U.S. as well as internationally, because there's a lot, (laughs) there's a lot that is happening internationally too. And I think just reminding our listeners that there are things that aren't happening in the U.S. that are happening in other countries that also affect us and how we operate in this country as well, right? Yeah, it's great. So I talked about briefly in the last episode a little bit about how I understand spirituality and what it means to me. And I, I try to talk about this idea of not seeing spiritual or spirituality as just a good thing, right? Some of us use the term spirituality and think, oh, I'm, I'm such a spiritual person or I strive to be. And what they mean is is like, I'm good or I'm peaceful or, or only this sort of positive understanding of spirituality. And I try to use it as a neutral term to just help us access and reflect what is the orientation of our spirit, right? And I have this understanding of spirit as, as our energy or our life force, the things that animate us. So part of that is about attitudes. Part of it is about postures. And it ultimately leads us to take action. Like our spirit is what animates us. That would be another synonym that people use. So when I think about postures, I think about inviting people, right? I'm thinking about my work as a spiritual director. It's inviting people to recognize the thoughts or the emotions that are energizing them in their interior life. And to think about how that corresponds to an external posture, which sometimes gives us a clue to our action, right? If I'm feeling really closed off to or angry about or sad about racism, a posture for that might be this like clenched fists or, or arms crossed or sort of an inward turning kind of posture. But there could be a way to think about once I'm aware that that's how my spirit is feeling about it, to then sit with it and try to understand and and think through how I could open up my physical posture, which sometimes leads to a corresponding uh, shift in our spirit and our energy and the way that we choose to live in the world. I don't know if that gives you a, a concrete answer, Anthony, but that's a little bit about my thinking and how I work with this when I'm doing spiritual direction, for example. So Oliver, you mentioned something earlier when you first started talking in this part is that people are just really scared, right, to talk about their spirituality and faith and religion. Why do you think that is? What comes to mind, Toral, is I referenced Ibu Patel in our last conversation, and he's been a really influential person on my own thinking about religion and spirituality. He's a, a Muslim man and leads this amazing interfaith organization, the Interfaith Youth Corps. And one of the things he talks about, and he's riffing a little bit here on Diana Eck, who leads the Pluralism Project at, at Harvard University, But Ibu says that difference is a fact, but pluralism is an achievement. And I think that sort of cracks open something that I observe today, which is that we talk about diversity and we talk about difference a lot and we put a high value on those things. But the reality is, is people are scared to be different right now. And I I think the fear that you reference is, is this discomfort that we have with with a culture that has people from all kinds of different religions and different cultures and different sexual orientations and gender expressions. I I think at some level, our human response when we encounter difference, maybe this is learned. I don't know the answer to this actually, but I think there's a way in which we can be a little bit scared when we encounter something that's different than our own experience. But I also think that if that is learned, we can unlearn that. I think there are ways in which we can learn to practice a sense of generosity and openness. You used the word openness earlier 
toward what it means to encounter someone who's different. And I think if we're ever going to get to a place where we embrace pluralism and really, in a positive sense, can move past difference to find connection across our difference, that it requires us to approach it with what I would call a spiritual posture of openness and hospitality and a willingness to push through some of the discomfort into a space that is is far more generous and productive. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. And Oliver, just for our listeners, too, who maybe are familiar with the term pluralism, how would you define pluralism? Pluralism points us in the direction of a more intentional kind of engagement and not an erasure of difference, but an embracing of our particularities and our particular differences in a way that they can be complementary and that they can coexist. I used the analogy, I can't remember if it was last time or this time. Ah, sorry, about the melting pot and the buffet. Was it last time or this time? I used the analogy in our last conversation about um, America being a melting pot, and it was Ibu Patel himself who suggested a different metaphor, this idea of, of a potluck or a buffet, right? That we don't erase our differences, but we celebrate them. We bring them to the table. And, you know, I grew up in a Baptist church that loved a good potluck dinner. That was a thing we were known for. And a potluck in northern Maine, where I grew up, probably looks a little bit different than a potluck in Ithaca or a potluck in New York City or Bombay or some some other place, right? But there's a way in which when when we can celebrate our particular identities and experiences and fully bring them to our table, that we move beyond just tolerating differences into an altogether different qualitative kind of space that I hope would be what we talk about or strive to when we talk about pluralism. And to Anthony's point from our previous conversation, that's what's going to really lead to the true inclusion, right? And so if you bring that into a work context is when people are able to bring their true self to work every day, um, it's going to lead to that, that inclusion piece that we're working so hard to achieve. You know, Oliver, one of the things I think it would be remiss to, to not talk about, or I guess not kind of do, to basically just acknowledge, right, the racial injustice that and the racial awakening, as you mentioned in our last episode, that is happening in this country specifically in everything that is happening right now with this awakening and the ties and just the connection to spirituality, faith, religion. You talked a little bit about it at the start of this episode, but I think about from a spirituality context, what is the intersection there? What does that look like? Well, a couple of different things come to mind. I think about how with regard to racism in particular, if we, if we want to focus on that, how spirituality, I think, has been part of what has allowed racism to flourish in this country, and spirituality could be part of the solution, right? So, right, this is why part of why I use a neutral definition of spirituality and not just use spirituality as a synonym for, like, good or peaceful things, because I, I truly believe that part of what we're, what has been on display in this twin pandemic of the coronavirus and the racial injustice that we're seeing on display has been centuries of greed and pride and superiority and all of these things that I would say are spiritual problems at their core, right? It's all of those things that have worked together to allow a system where white people are in the majority and people of color are being systematically oppressed and are experiencing disparities of access to healthcare and property ownership and earning potential and education and so many things that we could go on and on and say, right? So, I mean, I think we have to be clear that, you know, religion and particularly Christianity 
has been a part of creating narratives that have allowed one group of people to be subjugated to another group of people. And it's, as a Christian, that's a really painful thing to admit, but until we can be clear about how that's happened, and I'm not a scholar in this area, but I can tell you in my own reading and in, in hearing scholars who speak about the history and have researched the history of this, it's clear that there's a connection there. And at the same time, I believe that spirituality can be part of the solution. If people are willing to do the hard work to confront their realities, to face their own personal involvement in these systems and their personal agency in possibly changing them, that, uh, you know, if that can happen, there can be a real change of these systems. We, we have the power to shape the world that we live in and a changed spiritual posture could bring about change in the world. And I don't want to be naive to that. I realize that what I'm saying is high and lofty and, and is an aspiration, but I very much believe that religious spaces and personal spiritual practices can be part of the solution here. Am I getting at the spirit of your question, Anthony? Definitely. And I, you know, I think for me, it's one of those things that it's in tandem with other elements, right? In terms of thinking about like activism and and looking at activism maybe as a posture, right? I mean, I don't know if that's, that would be appropriate to say, but, you know, I think looking at kind of some of the ways in which solutions to these issues are currently being addressed as a spiritual approach. Um, I wonder if there's any kind of added value or ways in which we can look at it from a different perspective, from a spiritual one, right? And uh, and I think particularly in the work that I did, especially when I think back to my undergrad days, I wouldn't consider myself an activist now, but when I was an undergrad, I think I, I had a lot of activist roots. And for me, a lot of what I did, doing protests, doing die-ins for certain causes to really address some of these injustices around different issues I never considered it as like a spiritual posture but I think in many ways you know me engaging in that was a way for me to elevate myself and also like my commitment to addressing this injustice to say you know I'm willing to put my body on the line for those who cannot who cannot advocate for themselves and because I have the ability to do so like I'm going to do that and so I think for me it what's really resonating for me in your response is viewing even that practice as like a posture or doing the education or like you said doing that internal work as a spiritual posture to be a part of the solution even at an individual level right and even if we're surrounded by members of our family or our friends who might disagree with us that in and of itself can still be a part of the solution yeah you totally get it anthony i love the way that you put that what comes to mind for me is I'm part of a couple of national networks of people who work broadly in spiritual life and spiritual care. And one of the new movements that's come about over the last 10 to 20 years is, you know, maybe back in the 80s or 70s or back way back in the 20th century, <laughs> people would think about chaplains as people who like come to hospice or come to a hospital and they provide spiritual care in a moment of like personal crisis, particularly a health crisis. But there's this new movement that's emerged around chaplains being on the front lines of, of activist movements. It's called movement chaplaincy and people who are seeing their, the spiritual care they're providing, not as being an issue of life or death in the hospital bed, but actually being an issue of life or death on the front lines of some of these movements you know, I think of someone like Patrice Cullors, one of the co-founders of the Black Lives Matter movement. I have a quote here that I'll share with with you of hers. Who I think she really speaks to the the spirituality of activism. She says, this is from an interview she did on another podcast, on the Unbeing podcast with Krista Tippett. She says, 
I mean, to be honest with you, so many of us in the Black Lives Matter movement have either been pushed out of the church because many of us are queer and out, but that hasn't stopped us from being deeply spiritual in this work. And I think for us, that looks like healing justice work. I believe that this work of Black Lives Matter is actually healing work. It's not just about policy. It's why I think some people get so confused by us. They're like, where's the policy? I'm like, you can't policy your racism away. We no longer have Jim Crow laws, but we still have Jim Crow hate, right? So, I mean, she says so much in that quote, but I think she really gets to this piece about part of the value of the movements is about affecting policy change and changing the culture, but there's a, a deeper level underneath that where they're doing some of the spiritual work so that people aren't approaching these difficult topics with a posture of hate or of, I don't even have the right words, but they're approaching it with a posture that would be about creative solutions and about healing. She uses this word healing justice. And it really captures the spirituality of, of what activism can be and I think aspires to be. So in everything that we're talking about, right, that speaks to the people who are ready, right, to move with this open posture. But my question is more towards related to the people who are not ready, right? Who are still holding on to this old powerful belief of it's this side or that side, or, or, you know, it's one belief or the other me versus you philosophy. How do we speak to those individuals? Okay. So two thoughts here. One is that I might offer a different perspective from the one that you just shared, Toril, to say that I'm not sure anybody is ever totally ready. We might have a, a very like small segment of, of the population that's like raring to go, ready to charge in there and, and do the work. But I think those folks are probably a really small minority. I think a lot of us are in a place of we're, we're getting beginning to get clear about our values and what we might call a conviction but there's still something in us that holds us back or we recognize the risk that's inherent in speaking out or joining a demonstration or, or whatever it may be. And, you know, there's a spectrum there. We're at different points of readiness along a spectrum. Maybe we would, would say it that way. But I think this invites all of us into some spiritual practice. And, and you know, one spiritual practice that, or a couple different spiritual practices that might be helpful here Our number one would be just some mindfulness to pause and to be aware of what's happening inside you, right? You might sense some conflict because on the one hand, you've named some core values that are important, but you also feel some risk because it's costly and it might cost you a job or it might cost you your reputation if you choose to speak out and and risk judgment or retribution by other people, right? So I think if we can be aware that that's happening within us and not just gloss over it, that actually can be a really generative spiritual practice. So just take the time to even notice and name that that's happening within us. And then I think the other spiritual practice would be about reflection. To take some time once you've named that, to then reflect a little bit and ask oneself, what's going on underneath that? What's really the driving thing? I would suspect that for a lot of us underneath it, there's deeply held fear. I'll name that as a person of, of relative educational privilege and, and employment privilege and white Christian privilege. I have fear around some of these things. I don't, I don't want to say the, the wrong thing. I don't want to do something that puts my job or my livelihood at risk. And once I'm able to name that and be clear about that, then I can ask myself, what's more important, my fear or my conviction that this is right? 
or my care for my coworkers and my neighbors who hold marginalized identities and a sense of justice about what I want for, for this country and for our shared world to be. And that's a hard thing to hold. Um, it's a hard reflection to do, but I, I think these kinds of difficult moments invite us to do that deep spiritual work to really get clear about what's underneath all of this for each of us as individuals. I also think that if we can do this spiritual practice and invite ourselves into a space where we're honest with ourselves and can reflect and be mindful about what's going on, fear is not the only thing. It sometimes is the dominant thing and the loudest thing. You know, I think of what was the movie a few years ago, Inside Out, that Disney yes, did where, yes. with the named emotions, right? Like fear can be like a really loud, yes. dominant, shaping kind of emotion. It's usually not the only one, right? And fear can sometimes cloud out other things that are really important to us. Justice and equity aren't like necessarily the loudest, sexiest emotions that we feel or spiritual movements, but they're there for many people or other values that, that are really core to who a person is and, and to what animates them in life. You know, another tool that I've used with with folks in, in some of the work that I've been doing the last few months that's been helpful is there's a, a tool from Solidarity Is, the building movement. I think you've shared this, Anthony, with some of the work that you've done as well. It, it's a tool that invites people to think about activism or social justice work, not as one static or monolithic thing, but to think about the different roles that are involved in a movement for social change, right? So I am a person who is a teacher and is a spiritual director and, and would like to be a healer, but maybe it's not my strength to be on the front lines doing a kind of activist work that one of my colleagues or neighbors might really excel at, right? So I think there's an invitation for us to think about, again, sort of underneath the fear, what's a particular role that I can play in this larger ecosystem for social change that's unique to me and to the strengths that I have, and to recognize that a movement doesn't have to look like one thing, right? It takes a village, as the old saying goes, and it's really an invitation for people to think of their unique strengths into this larger movement. I kind of want to go back to religion a little bit and something that we discuss in our conversations for this particular episode and looking at the international context of social injustices that are happening in addition to COVID-19, but also particularly this rise in fundamentalism that is happening globally. And how does that affect, you know, how we engage in spiritual practices? And then alternatively, you know, how does that then impact the ways in which we view diversity and inclusion. So, I mean, I think there's a lot that we can kind of unpack there, but I'd be curious to hear kind of from the global perspective and this rise of fundamentalism. So, A, maybe starting off with how we define fundamentalism or how you define it specifically, and then from there talking about, you know, what are some of the ways in which people are addressing it in, like, the spiritual realm or in the religious community as well. Oh my gosh, we don't have time in the day, but I'll, it's such a worthy topic and a good question. I'll, I'll try to take uh, a first attempt at that, Anthony. I mean, I, I do think internationally around the world, we see situations where fundamentalism is on the rise. And, and what I mean, or what I understand by fundamentalism is a rigid holding on to a particular set of beliefs, principles, or worldview to the exclusion of all others, Right. And I mean, if we were going to talk, we talked about postures earlier, if we we're going to talk about postures, I think of like a really clenched fist in the sense of like an unwillingness to let go of something, or maybe the image of like, uh, what's, is it the ostrich that buries its head in the sand, right? Like just doesn't want to acknowledge that there are other things going on in the world around. 
or worse, wants to erase those differences so that their way of seeing the world is the only way of seeing the world. We can say that this is an international or a global phenomenon, but it's it's not unique to other places in the world. This is happening in the U.S. as well. Again, speaking as a Christian, I will say that this is not particularly a Muslim thing or a Jewish thing. This is a Christian thing as well, right? This is a phenomenon that we see around the world. And I think part of it is in response to the fact that we are living in an increasingly globalized world. A thousand or 2,000 years ago, people could grow up in a relatively small community wherever they were in the world and probably never come into contact with people who saw the world differently than they and their family and their neighbors saw the world. But we live in this global community now, right? So I have neighbors who celebrated the Jewish High Holy Days and who different neighbors who go to Catholic Mass and other neighbors who pray in even different ways, right? So how do we hold all those things together? It's challenging. It requires, I think, deep spiritual work. So one thing that comes to mind is historically, over the course of the 20th century, for example, a lot of the major movements and movements of social change and political change were actually movements that were brought about by interfaith cooperation, right? Like people think of a a figure like Gandhi and think of the amazing things that he was able to accomplish, but people forget that he was working in collaboration across lines of religious difference. We think about Nelson Mandela and the interfaith movement that brought about um, the end of apartheid in South Africa. We think about Martin Luther King and can forget that he worked alongside Muslim brothers and sisters, Jewish leaders, there's a famous picture of him walking in one of his marches with the Greek Orthodox Archbishop Yaakovos next to him and Abraham Joshua Heschel, one of the foremost rabbis of the 20th century, walking arm in arm doing this work together across lines of religious difference. So I do think there's like a a suggestion or a helpful practice that's hinted to in that, that we have to find again, back to something we talked about in our last episode, lines of commonality and shared values that can fuel and motivate our work together for social change. And I do believe interfaith cooperation can be one of the really, really potent ways that we can cooperate on some of these issues. And I, we do see lots of examples of, of ways that's happening on, on a much smaller local level. But there's challenges to that. It's not easy. It's tough work. It's tough work. So Oliver, I know that you mentioned that us being more global as as human beings across the world as adding to fundamentalism. How do you think the pandemic COVID-19 has or hasn't impacted fundamentalism? Many of us, I won't say all, but I think it's hard to imagine someone going through this pandemic and remote work experience and in quarantine, etc., without feeling some sense of fear or anxiety or unsettledness or or disconnection, right? I think on any given day, I feel all or some of those things, right? And it's part of the challenge, you know, in the last episode, we talked about how important connection is and how religion can be a means to fuel our connection and also can be a means to fuel our disconnection. But one of the things that we've been talking about in Cornell United Religious Work is, is that this idea that our fates and our lives are integrally bound up with one another's has been a theme that we've returned to time and time again, that our actions have social consequences and we can disagree on religious doctrine and we can disagree on matters of some things in our shared life together, but it's pretty hard to disagree on the fact that our our choices have impact on one another. So when I put on a mask and I go out into social space, 
I am doing that in part to protect myself, but also to protect other people because I care about my community and I want to care about my neighbor. And for me, I guess I don't think of it as a spiritual practice, but now that I'm saying this, in some ways it is a spiritual practice that comes from a desire to want to care for my neighbor, right? So many of our traditions talk about care for the common good and care for the most vulnerable among us. So I do think that points back to this this piece about our human connection and how central that is and how many times that's been lifted up in the midst of this pandemic. I think when things are changing around us so much, we tend to hold on to the things that we can as individuals. And so that's where I was thinking that maybe there is a rise to fundamentalism across the board, across the world, because we're holding on to the things that we are able to hold on to. And it just so happens that in the rise of fundamentalism is these ideas, right? And some of those are religious-based ideas, others are not. Uh, Others can be political, you know, and so forth. And so we're just, I think, as individuals, as human beings, because things are so unsettled, that I think we're holding on to things stronger than I think we ever have. Totally. And I mean, had we had more time for like a third podcast, we could go into this in greater depth. But I mean, another line of of conversation that's interesting that comes out of your comment, Toril, is, is the sort of intersection between religion and science, which often are pitted against one another, right? That like, how can you be a religious person and believe in science? That's sort of the way the narrative takes place. I have never found that to be a particularly energizing debate to take part in. I don't see them actually as counter toward one another because my understanding of religion isn't that it should replace science. I think so much of religion and spirituality and faith are about inviting us to know ourselves and our interior world. So there's a way in which the scientific approach is about knowing oneself and knowing how one's spirit operates. And so that way, in that sense, they're, they're very complementary and they don't have to be opposed to one another. Though there are people who, who are calling into question science and its value, but I don't, I don't know if that's particularly helpful. Yeah, I always say like, so if you truly believe like that God creates everything, right? And so for us, that's even hard to believe because we don't have just one God, right? So even the person that guides you, like for us, it's the, the word G-O-D stands for generator, operator, destroyer. So the person that creates you, and then there's the one that takes you through your life and then the one that takes care of you after, right? So it's the G-O-D. So there's three people right there to begin with. And so even if you believe this philosophy that God controls everything that happens, I'm like, well, that includes science to me. I'm like, none of the scientific stuff would happen if God didn't want it to happen. So I don't, I agree with you that I don't think it's one or the other. So Oliver, as a queer person of color and as somebody who holds other marginalized identities, thinking about that intersection, I've definitely found myself moments during this quarantine, during this pandemic as well as thinking about all of the racial injustices, social injustices that are happening globally, I've found myself often to have very little hope, very little optimism from a spiritual context in terms of that things will get better. Because as you mentioned, from a historical piece, these issues have been happening for centuries. And this racial awakening, it's it's happening now, but it's also, you know, happened in the 1960s with the civil rights movement. And so it's, it's history repeating itself. But I think for a lot of marginalized populations, there has been a significant moment during this period where people have lost hope, have lost optimism, have disengaged in their traditional spiritual practices because of just everything that is happening around the world and the fact that people have very little control or feel like they have very little control to be able to make change or create change or find their role in that social change that you were talking about earlier. So for folks who are feeling this way still, or have felt this way at some point, like myself, what would you say to them? 
as a spiritual director to help guide them through that disheartening and this just just this uh just serious sense of hopelessness i would say thanks for sharing your experience anthony and i i would start by saying that i have felt those things too i have had moments over the past few months where i have felt myself going to a place of hopelessness and and even on the verge of despair and those are not particularly comfortable things to feel we we sort of have this this cultural, I would call almost addiction to feeling comfortable and convenient things. And we want happy things. We don't want to feel uncomfortable things. And I I think one thing for us to just be honest about in this space is that there is value that comes with naming even the the bad parts of life, even the, the bad parts of our emotional experiences. And to name what you did so bravely right now to say like, people feel hopeless. I feel hopeless. Uh, and probably some of our listeners feel hopeless. I I think that becomes a starting point then to then open up a bigger view of what's happening in the world and to see not just the things that reinforce the hopelessness or the despair, but to try to catch glimpses of what else is happening around us. There's a, a woman whose perspective has been really helpful and meaningful to me in the midst of this pandemic. Valerie Kaur is her name. She's a sick leader and, and lawyer and an activist. And She's written a new book called See No Stranger, and it's about sort of looking forward to the kind of world that may yet emerge. She started writing this book before the pandemic, but it took on a new kind of urgency in all of the inequities that have been laid bare over the course of the pandemic. And Valerie uses this really beautiful line. She says, yes, we're living in a dark moment, but she says, is it the darkness of the tomb or the darkness of the womb. And she invites us to think about the ways in which new things are being birthed in the world around us, or to even imagine the possibilities of what yet might emerge from this profoundly difficult situation. And she leans hard into labor metaphors and imagery and says, when it gets hard and labor is hard, I understand from my friends who have experienced that. It's not something I've experienced personally, but you know, you have to breathe, you have to push, you have to work to get to the beautiful, joyful thing that's on the other side. And so I wouldn't want to minimize anyone's hopelessness or despair. I would just want to invite them to consider if that's the only thing that's going on and to invite people to begin to imagine in the face of the inequities that we've seen, what other possibilities might be out there and to begin to allow that to stir our imagination, to consider how we want the world to be. And then for us to get to do the work, to get to work about building the world we want to see that's better on the other side of this. Many people have said we can't go back to normal because normal wasn't good. It wasn't good for everybody. It wasn't fully participatory and fully equitable for everyone. So I think there's an invitation for us to think about how we can build a more just, inclusive, and equitable world on the other side of this. And for me, that's a hopeful thought. And I think the key part in what you just shared, Oliver, too, and something that I've been sitting with as well is in that envisioning of a better world, a better future, to think of it without barriers, yes. I think is really important because I think sometimes when when you ask people to think so abstract, they then want to say, well, then you have this or then you have that. And then you have to consider this. It's like, no, if you were to remove any and all barriers, systemic oppression, whatever, right, any barriers to that world, what would that look like and how could we get there? And I think especially in the moment that we're in, um, and I didn't, I didn't, I didn't really think of this as a spiritual thing, but I kind of am now. Is that as we're having this conversation, that it's like we have the people who are very much hopeless, and 
we need to, for those who have a sense of hope, have a sense of optimism, we need to elevate them, right? Like we need to support them in some capacity because even in their hopeless state, like we still need their perspective. We still need that voice. And we also need the voices of people who are thinking of a future that in the current context is just simply not possible because like we need the we need everybody. I think that's that's what I've really taken away from this moment is that there is a role for everybody. There is a role for the people who are just learning about the impacts of systemic racism or injustice globally speaking. There's room for folks to understand it and there's also room for people to envision a better future to to be the guide, to be the the trailblazers of a new future and a new vision and we've always needed people that that are both. Um, I don't think there's I can't think of a single social justice movement that didn't have all of those folks as part of the the people that lead us to a, a better future. Uh, and so I think that's something that I've really sat with in addition to you know what you shared is that there is literally a role for everybody in this particular moment. In my world, when we really like something that somebody said, we'll say something like preach. And you make me want to say preach, Anthony, because what you're saying really resonates with me and I think is a really hopeful thought. And this conversation has really lifted my spirits on a sort of gloomy fall Ithaca day that we're experiencing as we record it. So I just want to thank you both for the ways in which you have brought your own spirituality to, into this conversation to the table. I feel enriched by it, and it has given a boost to my spirit. I just want to thank you both. So just on a very last note, Oliver, can you just spend just a few minutes talking about some of the resources that are available as part of your office, not only just for students, but maybe for staff as well? Yeah, thanks. Happy to do a shameless self-plug. So our because we're a, an office in the division of student and campus life, our work is mainly focused on students, but we have lots of opportunities that are open to non-students as well. So in the Office of Spirituality and Meaning Making in particular, I'll point folks to our website. We have some, some resources there, particularly looking at the intersection of spiritual practice and the COVID pandemic and also spiritual practice and the racial awakening that we're going through. So two good sets of resources there that are non-sectarian. Some are specific to one tradition, some are open to people regardless of tradition. So there's a number of resources that are compiled on the site. And then I would say also with all of the chaplains that we work with in Cornell United Religious Work, we have most of the major religious traditions represented there. And chaplains are available not only for religious service, but also for one-on-one conversation with folks. Many of them sponsor great programs to raise awareness on some of the intersectional topics that you brought up. And they're working with student orgs who are programming events and movies and all sorts of virtual things. They've adapted really well to the virtual space to do programs that explore these kinds of resources. So those are the two main things that I would point to. And if folks have ideas about other things they'd like to see happening, I'd love to hear from them so that we can know how to be more tailored to what folks' real felt needs are. Oliver, this has been a wonderful conversation, wonderful dialogue. And uh, I think, you know, similar to what you shared, you know, I, I also feel very much awakened, kind of enlightened in so many different ways. And uh, and I think particularly with all of our episodes and all of our guests, I just am always I'm always just taken away by just the amount of knowledge and experience and wisdom that we have among our staff here at Cornell. So thank you for the work that you do. Thank you for being a part of this particular show to talk about this topic. And just thank you. Thank you for for bringing your energy into this virtual space. I received that. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. 
Coral, what a super great conversation that we had with Oliver. I am, I'm not going to lie, I actually, this is one of the first times I feel like we've interviewed somebody where I actually had more questions after this interview. Like, I have so many more questions, and I know we could have easily gone on to talk about a lot of these topics further in depth, but I'm curious, what did you think? What were your, some of your takeaways? Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you. I think this was the first time where I actually wrote down some names that he shared, the individuals that have impacted him and looked those up information websites that he shared I've, I've been looking those up so I agree that definitely more questions walking away which I think is a good thing for me there were a couple of things I think that stood out to me one of the biggest ones uh, is when he mentioned that the difference between uh, melting pot and and possibly a buffet style or a potluck mentality and you know, when whenever we're taught, we always everybody always says America is like a melting pot, right? But essentially, when you think about what melting pot is, is also that we all melt into one group or one identity, right? And so, so looking at it from a different lens of uh, of a potluck or a buffet really stood out to me because then we each get to keep our individual identities, but yet we still become part of this larger lunch or dinner or whatever the, the concept is, right? If we're looking at a potluck, we, we become part of this larger larger group, but yet where each dish within the potluck can still kind of hold its own. And so when I kind of put that on to individuals, it's that we can become part of this larger America, but yet we can still hold on to our individual identities. And so I really, really liked that philosophy. And that's something that really stood out to me. I agree. I love the potluck metaphor. And I think for me, what I, in addition to that, I mean, so many things I really took away from this. One of the things that I also in thinking about this recap, right, have come to realize is that because I don't think about this identity as much in terms of my religious identity, because I don't particularly subscribe to any one particular religion, it's also, I think, been a source of discomfort in some ways. And so, you know, I, it's something that I'm still sitting with, but I think this idea of spirituality, religion, and faith, and trying to make meaning of all three, for me, has caused a lot of discomfort to really explore, especially why maybe I haven't in previous times really explored these three and how I define them for myself. And so that's something that I'm still taking away is trying to figure out you know, how does this impact me on a personal level? But then in addition to that, how does that impact the types of conversations that I have, the types of foot trainings that I facilitate, right? Dialogues that I facilitate around religion, spirituality, and faith. And so that's something that I'm sitting with. But one of the key things that I really appreciated that Oliver shared in the second part of the show was this whole notion of posture, right? And how our posture really matters. And I think even outside of the spiritual context that he had used it in i think posture totally matters in terms of how we engage in conversations around difference or in conversations that may cause us discomfort right and our posture really does matter in terms of our body language even what we tell ourselves in our heads right and how we then communicate that through our external physical presence whether it's through body language whether it's through tone of voice whether it's what we say directly to certain people right that can cause in some cases biases to to be said and to occur on campus and so that's one of the biggest takeaways that i'm really sitting with is just how can my posture be inclusive or more inclusive than what i think it already is and how can i continue to really focus on this notion of posture in a spiritual context and that's something that i'm going to continue to explore in in the present as well as in the future 
Yeah. So, I, Anthony, I agree with you because that was the other point that I had as well as all about the posture. And, and a couple of my takeaways was, I think he, Oliver mentions postures and attitudes, right? And that ultimately that can actually lead to action and a spiritual opening as well. And so the concept of thinking through how we open our physical posture and attitudes and what message that, that conveys to somebody that we might be speaking to, or in your case, you might be presenting to. And I thought that was very powerful. Yeah. Another piece I really liked about our conversation too was in just kind of the similarities with kind of how we view engaging people who may not subscribe to any one particular religion or faith belief or even might maybe consider themselves spiritual. Um, I really loved Oliver's answer in terms of saying like there is a space and everyone has a space to be a part of the conversation whether or not they they do or do not believe in religion, faith or have any type of spiritual practice. And I think his rationale and his reasoning is is very similar to something that I've thought about but it really just solidified it during our interview that yeah, that we should be engaging across difference and that we shouldn't be afraid to engage across difference because it actually may better inform our current practices and particularly on this topic around religion, around faith. I know for me, on a personal level, having engaged with different types of, or being exposed rather to different types of practices has actually kept me much more open-minded to people of various religious beliefs and backgrounds. And so, you know, I've gone to masses from Baptists and I've gone to I don't know if the, what they call them services but for Baha'i faith Baha'i faith is a particular religion that is very inclusive of other religions as well and so you know I've been to some of their services gatherings and and just been exposed to just so many different types of religions and practices and beliefs that I think for me on a personal level it's part of the reason why I don't subscribe to any one particular one because I understand that people, People view higher being and people view all of these different values in a different way, but not in a negative way because they're different, right? Kind of going back to what Oliver said, too, around celebrating difference and the importance of celebrating difference, especially when it comes to religion. For us to to really then hone in on this, what does our posture look like when we then interact with people of various faiths and religious backgrounds, right? Um, I think it, there's just so much overlap there, and I thought that was really powerful as a takeaway and as a message for me to constantly remind myself and hopefully for others that they resonate with as well. Yeah. And, and for me, it's it was taking that right and adding in the philosophy of that we can actually learn to practice that. And that that's what I really like that, that you can actually practice or, or learn to practice a sense of generosity and openness, right? And has nothing to do necessarily with a particular religion or faith or, or spirituality. And then that allows us to move past our differences and towards a connection through these differences that we might have. And so I thought that was very powerful as well. If I could just add one more thing to this recap, I think just remembering the importance of values and Oliver talked about this as a way to connect across difference, but I think it's something to always remember to hone in on our values and to use our values both personally as well as at an organizational level as a way to connect with others across difference. So for example, even here at Cornell, we have our core values, right? And so that's something that we as an organization Based on those values, you know, we uphold and maintain through the work that we do, through the interactions that we have with others on campus. And so I just thought that that piece around really connecting with others on values rather than on specific differences and honing in on those differences, I thought was really important as well as the takeaway for all of us to really remember when we're having these difficult conversations around some topics that may be considered taboo in the workplace, like 
spirituality, religion, and faith. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe and submit a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or SoundCloud. It helps new listeners find us and the show. Also, if you or a fellow colleague would like to be interviewed for an upcoming episode, please email us at ie-academy at cornell.edu. My name is Toral Patel. My name is Anthony Sis. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Inclusive Excellence Podcast. This podcast is a production of the Department of Inclusion and Workforce Diversity in collaboration with Cornell Broadcast Studio. We would like to give a special shout out and thank you to our co-producer and sound engineer, Bert Oldham-Reed, for making us sound wonderful each and every episode. Thanks, Thanks, Bert. Bert. Truly, thanks, Bert.